The text this morning is found in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15, and I ask you please to turn to Romans chapter 15. And before we consider it together, I'd like to ask that we pray together once more. Let us pray together. Gracious God, we consider it a great privilege to be here and to engage in your worship. And from the beginning of this meeting until now, we have wanted to come honestly before you, to acknowledge our sins and to acknowledge your greatness, to admire your Son and to admire the gospel. And the language of the hymn that we have sung seems so appropriate that it is sweet. And, and indeed, it is awesome to be here it is sweet and it is awful to be in this place where you dwell and where your son promises to meet with his people when they gather we have wanted with all of our hearts and all of our songs to join together and to admire you and to admire the gospel and it is our earnest prayer that in this assembly and in all the assemblies where your people gather today that you would send your victorious word broad and that you would reach out and grasp needy people and draw them into the orbit of your love and to the circle of your redeeming grace. And we pray for ourselves. We are here before you. Many, perhaps most here, are your people whom you have already drawn in. And some perhaps are not, but we pray that inasmuch as you have brought us together here, and inasmuch as you are the one who meets with his people when they are gathered, and inasmuch as it pleases you to cause people to be born again through the word of truth, and inasmuch as it pleases you to sanctify your people through the scriptures, we pray to you and ask that as we consider the Bible, that you would open it to our understanding, that you would enable us not only to understand the texts and the words, but that you would come to us in such a way that we deeply appreciate and we are deeply moved and affected by what is true, especially what is true about you. We pray, come and glorify yourself among us as we consider the scriptures. We pray and we hope in you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The text is in Romans chapter 15. I'd like to ask a question before we actually go to the text. And the question is, what, what should a Christian appear to be? What should a Christian be? And what should a Christian appear to be? Children, when you think of a Christian, your parents probably are Christians. Children, when you think of a Christian, what do you think of? What do you see in the Christians that you know? For those of you that are here and not Christians, when you think of a Christian, what comes to your mind? What, what, is, what is observable, notable to you about Christian people? And to those of you who are Christians, what is it that you want? What is it that you want people to observe about you? What is it that you want your children and your workmates and your neighbors? What is it that you think about that I want them to see this? about me. Well, if you know your Bibles, there are really several things that we should want to be true, and we should want those true things to be seen by others. But what I'd like to draw to your mind is this morning is the subject of hope. The Apostle Peter says that we should be, we should be so consciously sanctifying Christ in our hearts that when people ask us the reason for the hope that is within us, we have an answer to give to them. That text is written to people who are suffering. It's not written to pleasant middle-class people in lovely circumstances. That text was written to people who are suffering, suffering for their faith. And Peter assumes that they will display hope. And he says they should be so conscious of this that they're thinking, they're thoughtful, they're sanctifying Christ in their hearts so that when people see that hope, they say, why are you so hopeful? And the Christian is supposed to be ready to give an answer. Well, the point of that, one of the underlying points of that passage is that it should be true 
that in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, we exhibit hope. There's reason for hope, but we do exhibit hope. And it should be so bright and so observable that when people are around us for a little bit, they're sort of amazed that we are so hopeful. The text that I'd like to, to ask you to look at is in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. Now Romans chapter 15 and verse 13 is actually an expression of Paul's desire. You could almost say that it's a prayer, that it's Paul's prayer for the Romans, but it's certainly an expression of his desire for them. And we're not really going to study this passage in an exegetical way, but what I would like us to look at is the description of God in this passage. And I'd like us to consider the description of God for our sakes. Look at the text. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's short enough, I'd like to read it again. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Appreciate that faith and hope are not the same. They're not the same in this passage. They're not the same in fact. Faith, when somebody exercises faith, it means they believe something to be true. If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, it means that we believe that to be true. If we believe that Jesus is going to come again, we believe that to be true. If we believe that Jesus will hear our prayers, we believe that to be true. But this text is about going beyond believing. This text is about going to the state of hope. He wants us to be he wants us to be filled with joy and peace in believing in order that you might abound in hope. Believing is to lead us to hope. Increasing faith is to lead us to hope. It's to lead us to, to more than believe. It's to, it's to lead us to expect, to want, to eagerly look for. That's his concern for the Romans, that they would believe, and in believing that the ministry of the Spirit would bring them to a place of hope, of expectation, of eagerness for that in which they believe. And he begins this little prayer or expression of desire by describing God. Now, may the God of hope. And it's that phrase, and at this point this becomes more topical than exegetical, it's that phrase, it's that description of God, God, as the God of hope that I would like us to consider this morning. To say that God is the God of hope is to say that God is the God who gives hope. It's to say that God is the, is the source of hope. God, when he's properly known, inspires hope. He's the source of hope. He gives hope. When properly known, he inspires hope. Well, Paul doesn't exegete the phrase, does he? He gives it to us. Well, what, what are we supposed to think of when we think of God in this way, the God of hope? What is there about God that should inspire hope? What is there about God that, when it's believed, should really bring, bring us to a state of, of excited expectation and longing? Well, I'd like to suggest that there are some things that lie rather on the surface of the Bible that are true about God, that should inspire his people, and in fact, who should inspire those who are not yet his people? It should inspire them to hope. So I'd like us to take this up under a few headings. What about God should inspire hope? Well, number one, God is the God of hope because he delights to save everyone who comes to him. God is the God of hope. God is such a God who inspires hope because he delights to save everyone who comes to him. Now, that actually is the point of this passage, of the text in this context. You, if you know the book of Romans, you might know that the book of Romans, uh, the church in Rome was first-generation uh, Christians. All the churches that received letters in the New Testament were first-generation Christians. So here you have a, a new church, and there are, there are Jews who have become Christians, and there are Gentile pagans who have become Christians, and they're together in this church. And there were conflicts that were arising between those Jewish Christians and those Gentile Christians. And the Apostle Paul in chapter 13, 14, 15, he's, he's drawing 
he's giving pastoral admonitions to them about how they will live in the light of these differences of scruple. And when he comes to the end of the section in chapter 15, really beginning in verse 1, but it comes to its culmination before that, he's, he's trying to establish that it's been the will of God from the beginning that Jew and Gentile should be together in the church. It was true that at one point the Gentiles were without God and without hope. There was one time that the Gentiles were outside of the covenants, they were outside of the commonwealth of grace, they were outside of the promises and the prophets, and they were outside of the means of grace, and there was a very real sense in the past that the Gentiles were without hope and that hope resided in Israel. But Paul is trying to make the point that it was not intended to be so forever, and the truth that Paul is trying to make is that now the Gentiles are supposed to have hope. And if you have your Bibles open, some of your Bibles will indicate from verse 15, verse 9 and following. Some of your Bibles will indicate, indicate that what Paul is doing is quoting Old Testament scriptures. He's quoting Old Testament scriptures to demonstrate that the Gentiles and the Jews are to be get together in the church, that the gospel is no longer limited to Jews. And he quotes in chapter 15, chapter 15 verse 12, he quotes Isaiah. And listen to this text. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. And it seems that Paul takes off from that statement about the Gentiles will hope in Christ and hope in God to extend himself. Now the God of hope, may he fill you. Well, what is the point of all that? This is the age of hope. This is the age when the gospel and the means of grace are no longer limited to the nation of Israel. This is a day when the Gentiles are welcome as well as the Jews are welcome and the gospel is for everyone who will have it. This is the God of hope. There is no one that's excluded for any reason. Every Jew, every Gentile, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman, every nice person, every wicked person, Every person that wants to be forgiven is welcome now to come to God through Jesus Christ. The Gentiles are the hope in this God. And Paul wants that to be enshrined in this desire for the church. His desire for the church is may the God of hope, this God who has opened up his grace now to everyone, may the God of hope give you joy and peace in believing so that you might abound in hope. Well, the, the first thing that should be in our minds about why we should be inspired to hope because of God is that God, is, God delights now to forgive the sins of everybody who wants him. God is the God of hope to the Jew. God is the God of hope to the Gentile. And from the Bible's perspective, all humanity is divided into Jew and Gentile. And to say for the Bible to say that the hope is now extended to the Jews and to the Gentiles is to say that the hope is now extended to everyone. And so you think of yourselves, God is a God of hope for you, Jew or Gentile, child or adult, grievous, wicked, scandalous sinner, a relatively nice child who's been obedient to your parents, and your sins are primarily in your failure to love God, whatever your state, if you want this God, he is open to you. He is the God of hope for everyone who wants him. The second, <clears throat> the second thing that I'd like to draw to your minds is that God is the God of hope because he is determined to keep his people when they are most distant from him. God is determined to keep his people when they are most distant from him. We might take it as a no-brainer that when God's people are closest to him, when they're having their devotions and their conscience is good, and we might take it as a no-brainer that God keeps them when they're like that. But the point I'd like to stress is that God is the God of hope for you believers who are struggling. God is the God of hope for you because he is determined <coughs> to keep his people when they are most distant from him. I'd like to ask you to look at an Old Testament example of this in Psalm number 73, and then we'll look at a New Testament example. But turn, please, to Psalm number 73 to illustrate this principle that God is committed to keep his people 
when they are most distant from him. Psalm number 73. Psalm number 73 is a helpful psalm in so many ways, but because of the nature of just using this as an illustration, uh, I, I just I would have to be suggestive, but I would commend this psalm to you who are Christians for a more careful study. The psalm written by Asaph, Psalm number 73. Asaph was in a very low spiritual state, and then he came to repentance. You look at chapter 73, verse 22, in reflection, he says, verse 21, thus my heart was grieved, I was vexed in my mind, I was so ignorant and foolish, I was like a beast before you. Well, what made Asaph so describe himself? What was true of Asaph that made him so ashamed? What was true of Asaph that made him feel like he was just a beast before God? Well, if you look back in the psalm, chapter 73, verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart, but as for me, now, Asaph is the name for one of the musicians in the Old Covenant. Asaph is a general name for those who were music leaders, worship leaders in the context of the Old Covenant. And so here's this person who has this place, and he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, and what's the cause? For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 13, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. You see what he's saying? I'm one of the musicians of Israel. God is good, but as for me, I just about fell off the path. And the problem was that I was genuinely envious of the prosperity of the wicked. And if we'd read the verses that, we just, that I just skipped over, he identifies their wealth and their riches and how they don't get sick and how they don't have complaints and everything's easy for them. And he says, verse 13, I've cleansed my heart in vain. Wash my hands in innocence, because I've suffered difficulty all the day long. They have nice lives, I have a difficult life, and he was envious of that. And notice what he says in verse 15. He said, if I, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. He is one of the prominent men of Israel. And he's saying, if I had admitted this, if I had if I had opened this up, I would have been hurtful to your people. So here he is. He's in a state where he's envious of the wicked. It's gnawing at him. He's feeling distant from God. He is constrained by this sense that I can't say this because it will be hurtful to God's people. That's his state. Now God restores him. You see how, it, how the text goes on in verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Just too painful. How can the wicked have such good lives? And how can I have such a bad life? And how can I be constricted in the situation where I can't even talk about it because it'll be, it'll be hurtful to God's people? It was too painful to me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation, to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Now, the verses that we read earlier, this is his reflection back on that. I was in this awful state until I went into the house of God. I was in this awful state until I brought this before God. And God made me see things that I should have seen before. And he says in verse 21, thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Now notice verse 23. Nevertheless, 
I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide, you will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I had in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Appreciate, appreciate the personal dynamic that he is expressing. I was so beastly. I was, I'm so ashamed of what I was. Nevertheless, nevertheless, you were with me. You were holding me by my hand. You will continue to be with me. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. What a revelation that was. God to him could be the God of hope because in his most distant, dark place of hypocrisy, when he was restored, he could look back and realize God was with me all the time. God did not forsake me when I was grieving him. God did not forsake me when I was being like a beast before him. God did not forsake me when I was burning with a sense of envy against the wicked and knew that I couldn't speak because my speaking would dishonor. All that time, all that time, the Lord was with him. All that time, the Lord was committed to him. All that time, the Lord was determined to keep him. And when he was recovered, he, he could see that. Well, I'm using this just as an illustration of the point. God is God of hope. God is the God of hope to his people who backslide. God is the God of hope to his people when they're distant from him because God's committed to keep his people even when they're distant from him. Now that's an Old Testament example. Think of the New Testament. We have richer revelations of the grace of God in the New Testament. This, this 73rd Psalm is wonderful. It's wonderful. That God was always with him. God was always with him even when he was beastly. God restored him. The New Testament is richer. How is the Lord Jesus represented to us when our sin is in the picture? Think of what the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2. He says, the beginning of chapter 2, that, brethren, I've written, my little children, I've written these things that you might not sin. The previous context is about sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Several things in the first chapter, he says, I've written this so that you don't sin. Truth is supposed to lead you to not sinning. I've written these things to you that you don't sin. But it's actually an and in the original. It's, it's, a, it's a conjunction and, not a... I've written these things that you not sin. And if anyone sins, if anyone does sin, if anyone sins, what? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, as if this is for a little cult. Not for ours only, but for the whole world. That's the picture that's supposed to be in our minds when we're thinking about our sins. If anyone sins, what? We have a great critic in heaven. We have a, a divine fist that will crush us. If we sin, we have an advocate. Who needs an advocate? People that are in trouble. If anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He is the Son of God. He is the righteous one. He is the one who laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is our advocate, is ever pleading the efficacy of his atoning work, that God is forever, forever turned away from us in wrath, forever when we sin. The picture is a similar picture in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 Verses 11 and 12 and 13 are some of the most sobering passages in the Bible. They talk about exposing our sin in that text in Hebrews chapter 4. And you don't need to turn there, but I, I would like to turn there and just remind you of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 and 13. The writer talks about how sobering it is to be before God, for us to be before God, who knows everything. 
And so you have this statement about God in Romans chapter 4 and verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, as discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You have to think about God being a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of your heart. It's bad enough for, it's, hard, it's, it's difficult for us to think about God bringing our outward conduct before his eyes. This passage is talking about not outward conduct, it's saying that God discerns our thoughts and the intents of our hearts. Verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is a context where the writer is asking the Hebrew Christians to contemplate this. Everything about you is open and known to God. Now his concern is that they not fall away. His concern is not just to rock them. His concern is they not fall away. So he's, think of the worst. Think of the thoughts and the intents of your heart being known to God. Think of everything being naked and exposed to God. He follows up on that by saying, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us come, therefore, boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain grace to help us in time of need. What's supposed to be in our mind when we're thinking about all of our sins being known and open to God? What's to be in our mind? What's to be the response from that? Are we supposed to cower back? Are we supposed to cower back and realize that God wants penance and God wants us to somehow do the things that would be necessary to somehow get in a circle of his favor? Absolutely not. When we think about all of our sins, we're supposed to realize that God has provided his son to be a mediator for us. God has ordained that his son would become incarnate so that as a human being he would understand our infirmities. And we're supposed to understand that when in the face of all of our sins, that we have this Savior who is sympathetic with us, who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, who makes intercessions for us, and therefore we're supposed to be hopeful. And we're supposed to come with a proper kind of boldness, not insolence, or but awareness of sin, awareness of everything being known, thanksgiving for this mediator who understands us and sympathizes with us. Well, the point that I'm trying to make is that God is the God of hope because he's committed to keep us. He's committed to keep us in our most distant, when we are most distant from him. When we are in a place where we really have no hope in ourselves, we have no hope in how consistent our devotions have been, we have no hope in how successfully we've been mortifying some remaining sin, we have no hope in the effusion of love that comes out of our heart because it doesn't come. We have no hope in those things. God is the God of hope because he is committed to keep us when we are most distant from him. He is committed to hold our hands, as the 73rd Psalm said, and see us through our declensions and lift us out of them. And his son is committed to advocating for us and interceding for us to save us to the uttermost. He is the God of hope. In the third place, we should think of God as the God of hope because he is able to intervene radically. He is able to intervene radically and dramatically in the circumstances of his people. The Bible calls Christian people. The Bible calls God's people to see that he can respond to our cries. We don't pray simply to be pious. We don't pray simply for the good it does to us. We don't pray in a corporate setting. We don't pray in a corporate setting just because it might be edifying and encouraging. We're supposed to pray with the expectation and hope that God, that God will hear us. Now this Bible is full of this. The Bible is full of texts that are meant to stir us to confidence and to hope that God will listen to our cries and that he's able to intervene radically. 
Listen to some of the more obvious passages. Jeremiah 33, 3, Call to me and I will answer you. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you don't know. Jeremiah 32, you have a verse 16 following, you have one of Jeremiah's prayers, and he begins his prayer in verse 17, O Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. And in what is interesting, God responds in that prayer in chapter 32 and verse 27 by God saying, Behold, I am the God, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? When Jeremiah addresses him, he says, Is there anything too hard for you? And God says, Yes, I am the God who has created everything. Is there anything too hard for me? Psalm 50 and verse 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Ephesians 3 and verse 20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. We're supposed to believe this. We're supposed to understand. We're supposed to believe. We're supposed to hope that God, the God who made everything and can do anything he chooses, that that God will hear our prayers. We are not to pray with pathetic, limp views of God. We are seeing us full of power and full of ability to intervene on behalf of his people. I'd like to use another Old Testament illustration. So if you'll turn, please, to the Psalms again, this time to Psalm number 78. And again, I commend this psalm to careful inspection. It has a special reference to parents and children. So those of you who are parents or children, but all of, of you, I commend this 78th psalm for your consideration. In the 78th Psalm, in the first seven verses, the psalm writer declares that parents should make the works of God known to their children. In the first seven verses, as part of the burden of the introduction to the psalm, is that parents should make the great works of God known to their children. Now why? There are, are no doubt There are several answers that might come to your mind. But I want you to notice the specific answer that the psalmist gives to that. Verse 6, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children. Why? Verse 7, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. The immediate goal of the psalmist is teach your children the works of God that they might hope in God. Now, stay with me a minute. This is really a discouraging psalm in many ways. You read this psalm and there's a record of reversals. There's a record of falling away. There's a record of of God chastising his people and them not responding well to the chastisements. It's a record of some pretty discouraging things. But what can be hopeful about that? The hope part is especially illustrated in verse 65. I want you to try to, we're not reading the psalm, we don't have time to do that, but the flow of this psalm is reversal, discouragement, chastisement, poor responses to that chastisement. And then it says in verse 65, then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a mighty man who shouts because of wine, and he beat back his enemies. He put them to a a perpetual reproach. And then he goes on to talk about what God did in defeating his enemies and raising up David and enabling David to shepherd his people according to God's own heart. And in in David there was a savior of a sort, and in David's greater son there will be a true savior. But the point that this psalm comes to is discouragement, 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 bang. God chose to work. God, and there's no irreverence, there's no irreverence. A man wrote this psalm, but he was moved by the Spirit of God to write this psalm. This is not a negative, irreverent statement about God, but the picture in verse 65 is the picture of somebody who's asleep, 
he's had too much wine. It's a picture of somebody who's in a slumber, who's not paying attention. And the picture is of that man, bang, all of a sudden he wakes up and he roars. An instant, radical change. Well, it's, God is not likened to a drunkard. And God is not likened to one who's just asleep and doesn't care about what's going on. But the point is, when he chooses to awaken, when he chooses to work, radical things will be done. God is God of hope because he's able to intervene and radically change things when he chooses to do so. And we're supposed to know that. We're not supposed to presume that whatever we want will be just what God wants, and so everything we ask for is going to be given to us. That, that would be foolish, right? Those of you who are parents, you know that there are some things your children request of you, and you know in your wisdom and good judgment that wouldn't be good for your children. And God is like a good parent, some things that we request of him, some solutions that we pray for. He, doesn't, he knows they're not the best for us. And so he says no. But we're supposed to know that he is able, in a moment, when he chooses, to awaken, as it were, from inactivity and do something radical for our good. Think of the kind of things that happen in a moment. Think if you have a a teenage child, and you're just so anxious that this child is going off the rails. Well, imagine you are a Christian child, and your dad never been a believer, and he's just getting worse and worse and worse. Think of what, God, what happens when that teenager is converted in a moment. When God awakens, as it were, and he sends his spirit to that teenager, convinces him of his sins, makes Christ attractive to him, gives him faith and repentance, and this teenager falls before God, and he's obedient to God, and the fear of God's in his heart, and he loves God, and he wants to keep all of God's commandments. What a change. What a change that makes in your family relationships. Imagine you're the woman married to a man who does not obey the word. And you're struggling with Peter's counsel to that woman. You're supposed to be submissive, and, and you're... But he's such a jerk. Well, imagine if God converts that man. Imagine what, in a very quick moment, in a, in a short setting, a small setting rather, how radically something can change if that man is converted. And you can extenuate the point into anything. You might be dealing with poverty. You might be dealing with unemployment. You might be dealing with some besetting sin. Whatever, whatever just seems that God is not responsive. You're supposed to know this. You should pray with hope because God is able in a moment to rise up and to do the radical thing that would be necessary for you. God is the God of hope. He is the God of hope because he delights to forgive. He is the God of hope because he is determined to keep us where we are most distant from him. He is the God of hope because he is able to radically intervene. And in the fourth place, he is the God of hope because he has promised to work all things together for the good of those who love him. What are we to think about God if God doesn't dramatically intervene? We know he's able. We know he's able. But what are we to think if God doesn't radically intervene? What are we to do if God in his fatherly wisdom determines the best answer to our prayers is to say, no. What are we to do? Well, we're to know this, that whether he does the radical thing or not, that he is committed to working for our good. It might be too boring to give you another Old Testament illustration, but I have to turn to this passage. In Daniel chapter 3, you, you remember the story. If you went to Sunday school, you probably heard this story, but it's, it's so much more important than a Sunday school story. In Daniel chapter 3, you have Daniel's three friends who are just about to get thrown into the fire furnace. And they're commanded that they must bow down and worship the false god. And if they will not worship the false god, they're going to be thrown into that awful furnace. And you have this, <clears throat> you have this threat, Daniel 3.15. If you fall down and worship the image which I have made good, but if you do not worship, this is the king saying, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery, fiery furnace and who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? 
Well, what would you do if you were one of those three young men? I'm going to throw you in the furnace. You're going to burn. What God is going to deliver you? Well, do you remember the response of those men? It's recorded in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And they say this, O Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Our God is able to deliver us if you throw us in there. He's able to deliver us from the burning fire, and he will deliver us from your hand. But if not, we know that he's able, and we know that he's willing. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. That's the disposition we're supposed to have. We're supposed to believe that God is able. We're supposed to believe that God's heart is disposed toward us. But if he doesn't do what we think he needs to do, that's fine. That's fine. If not, let it be known to you, O king. If not, let it be known to our conscience. If not, let it be known to our families. We will serve God regardless, whether he intervenes radically or not. We're supposed to have the attitude that the Lord himself had in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying in the most ardent ways that a child could pray to his father. He's begging God that this, that this cup, that this death that is just about to be engulf him, he begs for it not to happen. But he begs for it not to happen with this provision, nevertheless, not my but yours be done. We're supposed to look at God as the God of hope. We're supposed to believe and pray that because God can deliver us radically, but we're supposed to have this awareness too that if he doesn't, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now the text that lies behind this is probably already in your minds. The text that lies behind this point is Romans chapter 8. Remember Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8 and the verse 23 in that area, Paul talks about how sin is, the curse of sin is over the whole creation. The whole creation. The whole creation is groaning under the weight of sin. And he says in Romans chapter 8 that even we who have the, the Spirit, even Christians, not only the world in general, but even we who have the Holy Spirit, we're groaning within ourselves, waiting for the redemption of our bodies, waiting for that time when, when our hope will be actually fulfilled. We're waiting. He goes on to say that there are some situations that are so grievous to us living in the world there are some situations that are so grievous to us we don't even know how to pray. And it says that when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays with groanings and intercessions that we are not able ourselves to comprehend. We don't know how to pray. Things are so bad in this fallen world. The Spirit does pray. But then he goes on to say we, there is something we do know. If we don't know how to pray, there is something we do know, and that's in our verse, right? Romans chapter 8, 20. For we know that he works, that God works all things together for those who love him. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. We are suffering with the rest of the creation. Some situations, we really don't know even how to ask God. The Spirit helps us, but we're supposed to know this that God is committed to working all things together for the good of those who love him. And so if he doesn't deliver us as he could, as he's able, if he doesn't, some reasons known only to God that he doesn't engage that radical power for radical intervention, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to know this. He's the God of hope because he has promised whatever his providence is, whatever he's promised, that he'll work all things together for our good. He'll work our sins together for our good. He'll make our mistakes work together for our good. He'll make the sins of others that so painfully affect us. He'll make that work together for good. And it's not for us to define the good, is it? In that passage, the good seems to be that we'd be made like his son, that we've conformed to the image of his son. Well, God's holy son became our savior through many sufferings and many trials, and many tears, and many disappointments. There are many people that disappointed him. If God chooses to bring us through many sufferings and tears and disappointments that we be like Jesus, we say, with humility, we bow our heads and we say, Oh Lord, I'm so grateful to be your child. Do what you choose best. Work good for me. 
you've promised to work good for me in all things. Well, God is the God of hope. He is the God of hope because he delights to forgive everyone who comes to him. He is the God of hope because he is determined to keep us when we are most distant. He is the God of hope because he is able to radically intervene. He is the God of hope because he has promised to work all things together for our good. And now finally, not finally in terms of truth, but finally in terms of this sermon, finally, God is the God of hope because he will certainly and ultimately make all things right. God is the God of hope because he will certainly and ultimately make all things right. For each of you, for each of his people, he will take you to heaven. For you as an individual, he'll make all things right in that way. He'll deliver you from everything that breaks your heart and causes you sorrow. He'll deliver you from all of your sins. He'll deliver you from every, every touch of unrighteousness. He'll deliver you from that, take you to heaven. In a larger and more ultimate way, the Lord Jesus will return. And he will return and he will gather all the nations before him and he will enter into a judgment with them. And those who are his people will be marked off as his people and enter into life. And those who are not his people will be marked as not his people and they'll be pushed into everlasting punishment. And when the Lord returns, he will destroy everything that's ruined. And he will, in the language of the Bible, he will create a new heavens and a new earth. And in that environment, only good will dwell. Only love, only righteousness, only goodness, only peace, only joy will exist. God is the God of hope. If you are suffering, if you are suffering from your sins or the sins of somebody else, there is a day coming when that will be over. And that day is an eternal day. That day is not a decade or your lifetime. That day is an eternal day. God is God of hope because he delights to forgive everyone who wants him. He is the God of hope because he will keep his people. He's determined to keep his people when they're most distant from him. He is the God of hope because he's able to intervene radically. He's the God of hope because he's promised to work all things together for our good. And he's the God of hope because he will certainly and ultimately make all things right. Let me, let me conclude by going back to that first question. What do you want people to see if you're a believer? What do people see if you're a believer? Do they see seriousness? Do they see sobriety? Do they see superficiality? Or do they see sullenness? Or do they see a self-pity, a self-centered pity for my awful circumstances? Do they see hope in you? Do they see that many of you live in such pleasant circumstances, it should be easy for you to display hope? But for those of you who live in hard circumstances, do, do people see hope? Are you so aware of God's character and God's purposes that you think of him as the God of hope and being animated by this awareness that he is the God of hope is, is that what people see? That's what they should see. We who are the Lord's people, we should have a sense that we put on our colors every day, right? If you think of athletics, we put on our team shirt every day. And what should the colors be that we put on every day? Well, one of them should be hope. People should see that, especially if we're in bad circumstances. People should see our hope, and somebody should say to us, how can, how can you be like that? You're in high school, and you're a believer, and you're out of step with the other kids because they want to do things that you don't feel comfortable with. But how, what are they supposed to see? Oh, this sullen, withdrawn girl or boy? No, they're supposed to see a young Christian who's full of hope. And at some point, some of those sarcastic, nasty kids should come to you and say, how can you be like this? How can you, how can you live with such a, a, with an observable hope? Well, if that's not characteristic of you, then this text as a prayer can become your prayer for yourself. You can pray, oh God, you are the God of hope. Please give me 
joy and peace in believing so that I would abound in hope by something beyond human optimism, that I would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you are rather sullen or morose or burdened down with all the things that are wrong, make this your prayer. Help you to believe in such a way that joy and peace flood you in such a way that in that context you are bound in hope. And let me say in closing to those of you who are not Christians, what, what can be worse than being in this life without hope? There is one thing that can be worse. It would be to be in hell without hope. It would be to die outside of forgiveness, to die outside of grace, and to be consigned to a state where there is no mercy and thus there is no hope. We are not in that moment. We are not in that moment. We live in a moment, and you are alive in that moment. Those of you that are five, and those of you that are 65, and whatever your age, we are alive in this moment. And this is the moment where the God of hope extends the offer of grace and forgiveness to every individual. You may have the forgiveness of your sins, all that Christ did on the cross and all that Christ does do in his intercessions, it's all in Christ. Go to him. Go to him. Learn about him. Go to him. Learn about him. You'll find him attractive. Go to him. Go to your Bible. Go to your friends. Go to your, to your Christian friends. Go to your pastors. Go to the Bible. Learn about him. You'll find him attractive. And then you ask him to be your Savior and Lord and give yourself up to him. And all the privileges of the gospel become yours. And the God of hope becomes committed to you. Oh, I commend Christ to you. I commend Christ to you that you might have hope in this life and certainly in the age to come. Let's pray together. Father, you are gracious in all of your ways, and your goodness is displayed throughout the creation, and your goodness is primarily displayed in the gift of your Son. We admire you and bless you for your goodness. You have given us reasons to hope, and we pray for all of your people that you would help us to so properly see you that we would come to a place where we abound in hope by the ministry of the Spirit. And we pray for anyone, for children, adults, that are outside of grace. Draw them to your grace today, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.